worship team. Like I mentioned earlier, and if you were here last week, you would have heard, um, we're doing a four-week series on Christian community. And our anchor passage is Acts 2, 42 through 47. So I'm going to read that today, and then I'm going to read another passage from Ephesians chapter 4. And so the Acts 2 passage is on page 911 of your blue Bibles. And then the Ephesians 4 is on page 977. I'm going to start by reading the Acts 2 passage, page 911 of the Blue Bibles, Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, now let's turn over to page 977, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, you love us exactly as we are, always. But you love us too much to leave us where we are. You call us into a relationship with you. You call us into the kingdom of, uh, of enjoying you forever and seeing your glory forever. And in this life, you begin transforming us to prepare us for that kingdom, a work that is going to be radically incomplete while we're here, uh, but a work that is a good and worthy thing to love and to seek. And so I pray today as we look at this idea of maturing in Christ, of growing up into the life that you've called us to, that you would inspire us all with a vision of how beautiful this is and give us wisdom and faithfulness to pursue it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my friends idolized Michael Jordan when he was young. 
Um, we were kids in kind of the, the great era of Jordan, and so uh, my friend wanted to be an NBA star just like Mike. And so he set himself the task of observing and imitating everything that Jordan did. So he wanted to dribble like Jordan dribbled. He wanted to shoot the way he shot. He tied his shoes the way that Jordan tied his shoes. He wanted to imitate him in every way in the hopes that he could become some measure of, some slight imitation of the greatness of Michael Jordan, NBA star, because he was the most dominant basketball player alive. It didn't work out for my friend, unfortunately. Um, He played baseball in high school, didn't go on to college athletics, but uh, he has a very happy life doing other things. Um, But he recognized the core principle of today's sermon, that if he really wanted to play basketball, to grow into the image of a basketball player, uh, he couldn't play like an eight-year-old kid. He couldn't dribble the ball with both hands. You know, he couldn't fling it over his shoulder to shoot it. He needed to change his eight-year-old ways and grow up into the image of a star like Michael Jordan. He needed to mature, in a word. In the same way, Christians are called to mature or to grow up into a certain image together. Last week in our Acts 2 passage, we saw that the early disciples devoted themselves to certain patterns of life. So they, uh, they persevered in a direction, that's what it meant, that they deliberately rearranged their lives in pursuit of certain goals. And in our Ephesians text today, which is going to be our main focus, it's where we're going to spend our time, we see that one thing Christians devote themselves to is maturing in Christ. So in verse 15, Paul writes that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, now we have to be a little bit careful about this because some churches will offer an unrealistic picture of maturity, of where we grow and how we get there. You know, they'll say, if you pray these kinds of prayers or avoid these certain kinds of things or, you know, work up enough faith in yourself, then you can guarantee maturity, that your marriage will become great. Your finances will become great. Everything in your life is going to be up and to the right forever. Uh, And that's just not true. That's not how human life works. That's an unrealistic picture of who we are. And so churches that promise those kinds of things, kind of the term for them is prosperity gospel. Because they say we can guarantee earthly prosperity here. But on the other side, and this is maybe more of a problem in younger generations, it certainly is uh, in mine, uh, some churches will say, all you really need is to be authentic. That God doesn't want you to worry about growth He's going to take care of that. That's all his grace. That's not you. You be honest about where you are, and you celebrate that God loves you where you are, and that's it. That's your job. You're done. Um, So what that does is that replaces the desire to grow in Christ with uh, just, you know, the you could call it the authenticity gospel of if I'm honest, then that's all I'm called to do. And as we see in this passage, that's a very important part of it. We talked last week about how Christians need to be radically authentic, probably more authentic than we are uh, oftentimes with a close group of community. But that's not enough. That God loves us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. Like the reason that someone joins a group like Alcoholics Anonymous is not so they can say, I'm an alcoholic, but God loves me, and that's it. You know, we'll see what happens. I'm going to live by default. They join a group like that because they say, I have this deep problem that is destroying my life, and I need to grow up out of it. 
And I know that my progress is going to be slow and halting. I know I'm going to have setbacks and backsliding. I know I'm going to have issues along the way. But I have a trajectory I want to grow on, and that is a good thing. And so we as Christians who have been called into the life of Christ, who have been called into the eternal kingdom of God to see his glory, we also have this call to seek maturity and to go after it because it is a good and beautiful thing to grow in Christ with our lives. So a, a living Christian is going to have a life that it, it might look like a stock ticker. You know, it's up and downs. We have uh, problems and things that come along as we go. But we are going to have a general trajectory of maturing in Christ. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at four markers of maturity in Christ that are in this passage. And I know preachers aren't supposed to do more than three points, so we're going to have to bear with me on this. But four markers of uh, maturing in Christ And we're going to talk through how we live those things out in our lives. So the first marker of maturing in Christ is trusting his truth. Trusting his truth is a sign that we're maturing in Christ. So we see this first, uh, Paul gives us like the negative image, the photo negative of it, uh, the mark of spiritual immaturity in verse 14. So Paul says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So to be spiritually immature is to be blown around in a storm, to say that there's winds of opinion going this way and there's waves of kind of my emotions, my feelings going this way, and I'm just caught up in it, just being tossed about every which way uh, with no rootedness or groundedness of myself. And just whatever force around me is strongest at the time, that's the direction that I'm going. In December of 2019, uh, a small plane carrying six people from Louisiana to Atlanta crashed. Uh, It killed five of the passengers. And after the authorities investigated the incident, they said that the most likely cause of the crash was a condition called spatial disorientation. The journalist who reported the story writes this. They write, spatial disorientation is defined by the Federal Aviation Administration as a loss of proper bearings, state of mental confusion as to position, location, or movement relative to the position of the Earth. Its handbook for flying says that the vestibular sense, which is motion sensing by the inner ear, can and will confuse the pilot, creating false sensations that lead the pilot to believe the condition of the plane has changed, even though it hasn't. So what this says is that when a pilot can't see the world outside them clearly, you know, this, this plane is flying in storm conditions, that the motion of the plane can create false sensations of climbing or sinking or turning, that if the pilot just follows the track of that inner ear, you know, the feeling of what's inside them, they're going to steer the plane into a crash. Um, and so uh, you know, they can think they're going up when they're going down or going straight when they're turning. They lose the sense of where they are relative to the earth. So that's spatial disorientation. And the article went on to describe the remedy to spatial disorientation. It says this. It says, because of these dangers, a pilot needs to believe what the flight instruments show regardless of what their senses tell them. So you hear that? A mature pilot is a pilot that trusts their instruments. It trusts what they trust what's in front of them regardless of what they can or can't see outside and what, whatever they feel is going on inside their body. 
They look at the instruments and they say, these things are reliable. These things guide me the way that I'm supposed to go. They orient themselves to the truths in front of them. So that's the difference between an immature Christian and a mature one too. So both of them can experience radical confusion as they look at the world around them. Both of them might have kind of internal storms or inclinations or feelings that steer them in the wrong direction that disorient them. They might feel the pressure of claims about truth or wisdom or goodness that contradict Christianity or just feel an internal pull away from Christ. But where an immature Christian gets swept away by that immediately, a mature Christian trusts the truth in front of them. They trust what the teachings of Christ, which are our flight instruments, show regardless of how they feel. Our era has seen massive upheavals, uh, culturally, politically, technologically, economically. We've had huge amounts of change, uncertainty, and anxiety. Uh, One pastor calls this a gray zone, where we had like this old order of things that made sense, and maybe there's going to be some new order of things that makes sense that kind of reestablishes itself in the future, but we're in between, and we're in kind of a no-man's land where it seems like a lot of things don't make sense anymore. This is a disorienting time externally and culturally. These things can tempt us to think that the basic truths of Christianity don't apply anymore. That one uh, is actually a Republican political candidate who unfortunately claims the mantle of conservative Christianity. He said to a, re- a reporter, he said, I think our people hate the right people. That was what he said. He said, I know who my people are because we hate the right people. And so we're in good shape. Not the right ideas, uh, not the right things, the right people. And so this guy, you know, from as far as I know, I don't know him personally, but, you know, it's one of Jesus's fairly obvious teachings is you shall love even your enemies. But this guy says, yeah, that, I'm sure that's true. But right now we really need to hate the right people. That's what we need to get behind. That is losing sight of your instrument panel, you know, for the sake of uh, going through uh, kind of going through a gray zone. It's losing sight of what's really true and good and wise. Being mature in Christ means trusting his truth. It means saying conditions outside me may be totally turbulent. Conditions inside me are all kinds of crazy. I can acknowledge that reality. But nevertheless, I can see what's true and good and wise right here in Christ. And I'm charting my course by that. End of story. And so why we need Christian community, one of the reasons we need one another is that we need to con- constantly reorient ourselves to this truth. Whether we say, like, I know I'm tempted to believe this error right now, or I don't even know what I believe. I just have a million questions. I need my community to come around me and help me sort through those things and say, here's the true path. Here's the direction you need to go. Here's who Jesus really is. Here's who you really are. Here's what you really should be doing. And help me stay on that course so I can trust Jesus' truth and make it through. So I can continue to grow. This passage goes on to say, uh, you know, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow. So last week we talked about the need for vulnerability and authenticity or acknowledging what's true inside me. We need that. At the same time, We need to be speaking the truth in love to one another to help us stabilize that and reorient the way that we're supposed to be going. We need people who can help us trust Jesus' truth together so we can mature. 
That's the first part. Here's the second. Maturing in Christ means copying his character. Maturing in Christ means copying his character. Let's look at verse 13. So Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want us to focus on those last two phrases especially. To mature manhood or spiritual adulthood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says that a mature Christian is going to be growing up toward the character of Christ. The pattern of their lives increasingly is going to look like the patterns set in his. The Apostle John makes this explicit in 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6. He writes, By this we may know that we are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So Christianity teaches that Jesus, because he was fully God and also sinlessly human, was literally the perfect man. He was the perfect example of what it means to be a human being, to live in a right relationship with God and a right relationship to the world around him. Now, we know that we're never going to be God and we're never going to be perfect here on this side of things. So there are things about him we can't imitate. But if we believe that he is the perfect example of how to be human, like Michael Jordan was the nearly perfect example of how to be a basketball player, then we are going to devote our lives to copying that character to seeing the way that he responds to his friends and his enemies, to seeing the way that he teaches, the way he makes decisions, the way he relates to God. And we are going to pattern our lives around that pattern because that is the way to truly be human. Not to build up our own pride, but just to to be the right kind of person. We are going to follow his example. We're going to copy his character. Now, this is especially vital for us Because anyone who's honest with themselves knows that we have lots of patterns and tendencies in our hearts that do not take us in a good direction, that do not take us the way that we're supposed to go. One pastor said it's like we have a current in our souls and it's moving in the wrong direction. And if we just sit still, if you sit still in a river, you're not going to stay in the same place. You're moving downstream where the river's taking you. And so we have a, a need to move upstream, to seek to copy the character of Christ so that we don't just become more and more kind of ingrown on ourselves. Later in Ephesians, Paul calls this current the old self. He says, your calling is to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, this putting off and putting on isn't like a one-and-done thing where I did that back when I was baptized and now I'm good. The old self is clingy. You know, it, kind of, it jumps back on. And so we see our old self coming back again and again and again. And so this is a, a daily call for us to say, nope, that's my old self. You know, it's like when I get really like selfish and angry at my kids for interrupting my time, that's old self. I need to put on new self that's patient and kind. Um, And so that's a constant struggle for us. And that new self that we're putting on really fundamentally is the character of Christ. He shows us what that new self is supposed to look like. I knew a group of guys who uh, struggled with pornography. That was part of their old self. And they committed to making part of their relationship, their community, 
fighting that old self. So they would text one another if they were in a situation where they might be tempted. They might even call one another to pray if they were feeling the struggle acutely. They didn't bust each other down when they failed. They knew that they were going to fail, and they gave each other grace, but that grace included a call to pick back up and pick up the fight again so they could keep going and striving to copy Christ's character. They were committed to maturing in Christ together. So that's the second mark of maturity. The third mark of maturing in Christ is building up his body. Building up his body. Let's read verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if, you're, if this metaphor sounds strange to you, if you're not familiar with Christianity, Christianity teaches that all Christians are joined into a spiritual unity with Jesus that's as unified and organic as the connection between a head and a body. And it's not just with Jesus. That means that every Christian across the world geographically and across time chronologically is part of one spiritual body that has expressions in local bodies, which are local churches and communities. So this metaphor gets used a lot in the New Testament of a body, and it used you know, particularly in churches that were experiencing division or conflict. See, in those days, just like now, you had ethnic and cultural and economic divisions and also just like natural gifts and passions, personalities that could cause conflict. And the early Christian communities uh, were so small that they didn't sort into like Jewish churches and Greek churches or servant churches and owner churches like, you know, we tend to do today. Um, Some of the biggest challenges the early churches faced from the inside was this temptation to make my interests more important than loving my brother or sister in Christ. So to make me the center of this body. Our culture today is very individualistic and very ideological. These are kind of two things that have really sprung up in our culture that are really dangerous for us. Um, It's individualistic, which means that people tend to treat institutions like schools, churches, or even families as mainly about me. What does this do for me? Does this make me a happier and better person or does it not? And if I can't use this to make me better, then I'm just going to leave it. Um, We even see that with families. Um, In October, the pop singer Adele gave an interview about a new album she was putting out. And she also talked about a divorce that she'd gone through a few years back. Um, she had a son, has a son. He was nine at the time of the interview. And uh, the, in the interview, it says this. It includes kind of a quote from her. It says, now Adele says her upcoming album was written with her son in mind so that when he's in his 20s or 30s, he can understand, she says, who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. Now, some divorces are tragic but necessary. This is not saying that. But Adele is honest here about hers not being necessary. She says, I dismantled my son's entire life in pursuit of my own happiness. I wanted to be happy as a creator, as a person, more than I wanted, you know, his life to go well. That's, that's very honest individualism. So our culture is that. And our culture is also very ideological. 
which means that there's tremendous pressure to either love or hate a very narrow set of beliefs or ideas that, kind of like that quote we looked at earlier, can turn into hating a set of people. Um, If you don't share my ideology, we can't agree to disagree or even have a healthy conversation. You know, you're a Marxist, you're a bigot, and I'm just going to distance myself from you. We can't interact or be together because you might poison me by your influence. Both of these forces, being ideological, being individualistic, they oppose this mark of maturing in Christ. And so these are pressures that really pull at American churches today. Because maturing in Christ means loving my brother or sister in Christ more than I love myself. So that our body, this unity that we have, can grow stronger together. It's serving the church by serving the people in the church rather than just asking them to serve me. So Paul describes this kind of love beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, passage you've probably heard read at weddings, and it's kind of ironic because it sounds like this really beautiful thing, but Paul is writing it to a super divided church, and so it's actually a rebuke. You know, he's sort of like holding their shoulders and shouting, this is what love looks like. Um, but that probably wouldn't go over well in a wedding. Um, <laughs> but listen to how he describes it. He writes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So a maturing Christian is part of a body that's growing up in love. That means that a maturing Christian is more patient and more kind than they used to be. Uh, we don't know where they used to be, but the trajectory of their life is moving in that direction. They're more humble and self-giving than they used to be. They're not just a squish who never says anything. You know, he says that love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but they pursue truth and righteousness with grace. A Christian community is meant to be a training ground for love. It's an opportunity to be confronted with someone who is different from me and presents me with the challenge, will I care for their good or will I put mine first? Can I put their needs and their growth above my own? Because every time we're faced with that challenge, we're faced with an opportunity to become more like Christ, more mature. We have a church member who has never been able to physically attend the church um, due to his age and health concerns. And we actually have a community group that has taken him in as a member, even though he's only been able to visit that group in person one time. So he's had hardly any contact with them. But for months, they've kept a regular pattern of calling him and visiting him to check on him. So they have adopted him into the rhythms of their life, or they've really, honest, more like changed the rhythms of their life so they can build a relationship with this man who is homebound. That's an example of a community saying we care about his good more than we care about our own. We're willing to inconvenience ourselves, to disadvantage ourselves a little bit for his sake so we can build up this body of Christ together. So the application question really for this one is, who needs my love? That's a question that we can ask ourselves. Who is someone in my community, in my neighborhood, in my church, who needs to be loved in a way that I can provide? Who needs something that I can give? If we ask that question, then we will see opportunities to love others. 
and we'll see opportunities that we have to grow in Christ. That's the third mark. The last one, the final mark of maturing in Christ, is holding fast to his hope. Holding fast to his hope. Verse 15 in our passage says that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's another phrase that maybe makes us ask, what exactly does that mean? Um, But there's a very similar passage in the book of Colossians that clarifies what this means. So we're going to turn there and finish there. If you look at Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19, it's on page 984 of the Blue Bibles. Page 984, Colossians 2, 18 and 19. It says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So in this passage, is also written by the Apostle Paul, and he's attacking a group of people in the church who are claiming that they had the key to becoming kind of a super-Christian. They say, we've found these extra sets of practices, these extra things to say and do that put you in the next tier of spirituality. And the specific practices aren't uh, as important as just the fact that they said, you know, they were self-righteous practices that made their followers, like he says in verse 18, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, which is a great phrase, you know, don't want to be described that way. He says these people were giving themselves the illusion that they were better because of the extra things that they were doing, that they were building their real hope, their hope of actually being validated by God on themselves. There is a danger, kind of like I said at the beginning, in talking about Christian maturity, that we can turn spiritual growth into a project to develop my own ego, where I can uh, puff myself up and feel superior to people who aren't as far along as I am, or even to hide where I'm still not as mature as I know I should be so that I look better on the outside. So that is a, a real danger in this. But Colossians tells us that that approach of making myself mature by my special effort, is the opposite of trusting Christ. That's why he says in verse 19, he draws the contrast. He says that those things are not holding fast to the head, that is to Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Christians should long to mature in Christ. Yes. Christians should work to mature in Christ. Yes. Our wills, our choices have a part to play in this. But what makes us grow, this passage says? God makes us grow. God's grace, operating through his Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ in us, is the one who really makes us mature. Any real change that comes in our lives comes from his grace. And any Christian who is actually growing in Christ and not just getting big-headed spiritually is going to be more humble and dependent on Christ than they were at the start of their journey. How does that happen? How could we simultaneously grow more mature and more humble? You may have heard this before, you know, it's uh, kind of a thing, but you can see this progression in the Apostle Paul's letters. So we know roughly when he wrote most of his letters, and so we can put them in chronological order. Near the beginning of his ministry in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. 
So he said, here's the apostles, and I'm the least one. In the middle of his ministry, in Ephesians, Paul refers to himself as the least of all the saints. So that means the least of all Christians. So I'm not just the least of the apostles, now I'm the least of all Christians. And toward the end of his ministry in 1 Timothy, Paul writes this. He writes, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Not I was before I got saved and I did all this maturing over the last couple of decades. He says, I am the chief of sinners, and Christ's grace saved me. His growth in Christ corresponded with a deepening sense of his own sinfulness and unworthiness. Now, in kind of the the therapeutic culture that we have, that sounds like a bad thing. Like, we're supposed to feel better about ourselves as we mature, right? And we are supposed to, you know, feel better about some things, but true Christian maturity uh, from Colossians 2.19 would say, not exactly. That Christians don't feel better about themselves as we grow. We feel better about Christ as we grow. Because what I grow into is deepening awareness of how fundamentally selfish I am, that there are layers that I didn't have any idea about, you know, 10 or 12 years ago that I see in myself now that were there then too, um, but now I'm aware of them through Christ's grace, that I see ongoing patterns in my life that it's like, in one sense, I should have stopped this a long time ago. I shouldn't want this anymore, but I still do. And uh, all of these things are, are in me. I'm more acutely aware of them. But at the same time, as I become aware of that, and then I look up and I see God knew that when he saved me. And he knows about the things I'm going to uncover 10 years from now and be like, it's worse than I thought, you know, even now. And even so, still, he has forgiven me. He has loved me. He has adopted me as his son through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so my view of myself gets smaller. But my view of Christ and of God's grace gets huge the more I see how much God has loved the chief of sinners, me, that I am. Maturing in Christ is ultimately about letting go of hope in myself and holding fast to the hope that Christ offers. It's about remembering again and again in my struggle for maturity that I'm the worst sinner I know. But Jesus was nevertheless willing to die to save even me and to reconcile me to God. That all of my immaturity, all my failure, all my turnings away were known and covered by his love. And then when one day I get to see God face to face and be welcomed home as his son, it's not because I earned it either at the beginning or along the way, but because Jesus earned it for me. That hope, hope in Jesus's life instead of mine, frees us up to chase maturity with all we've got because we don't have to validate our own egos by how much we grow. It frees us up to try hard because God has already forgiven us for our failures and he's already forgiven us for the ways that we're going to fail as we go. We can admit our immaturity so we can see how much we need to grow. We can hear truth from others even when it's truth we don't want to hear. It makes us able to love others because God has loved us so much I pray our prayer is that we would be filled with this hope so that we could hold on to Christ together and grow in him. Let's pray. Dear God, you saved us by your grace and you mature us by your grace. And so we don't 
earn your salvation anywhere along the way at any point in our lives. We never deserve it. So God, we thank you that you knew that, but you have freely given it anyway. And you've also given us the gift of growing into the image of Christ so that we can live the way that human beings were called to live. I pray that we would long for spiritual maturity and seek it out. I pray that our communities would be places and groups of people where we spur one another on to trust your truth together, to copy your character, to build up your body, and to hold on to the hope that we have in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.